All right, this is What is the Heart? Lesson 11. And I decided to write a second lesson on attitudes because I hadn't got all the way through all the use of attitudes in the Bible, and I wanted to try to incorporate all of them. So this will be good, though, because we all have attitudes every day. Dr. Barclay says, as goes your attitude, so goes your life. So if we can understand really the nature and essence of attitudes, we can maybe improve our life. And we have said numerous times, Mama was right. You can change that attitude. You can change it real quick if you want to. And we just have to admit we don't change it when we, when we don't change it because we don't want to. Whether it's joy or whether it's misery, we control it. And sometimes we leave it on that station just to make everybody around us miserable. That sounds like the love of Christ, doesn't it? So warm and fuzzy. Lord, help us. <laughs> We established in the last lesson that the Bible often uses the word spirit to describe what we would understand to be an attitude. In the Old Testament, out of 378 uses of ruach, that's the Hebrew word for spirit or breath, 83 that I count are references to attitude. So that's a lot of Old Testament scriptures that address the attitude of man. And if you look at those as a collective, you can begin to understand the doctrine of attitude, how it works, how it operates, how it's changed, etc. We defined last lesson, and we'll continue, defining attitude as the spiritual aroma, both good or bad, our heart produces by what it insists on thinking, wanting, and feeling. Our attitude is our choice, and it is what we insist on thinking. You can cast down those thoughts. You can curse them. You can reject them. My wife apparently had a very horrible and vivid dream last night, and she woke up, and the first thing she said this morning is, I cursed that to hell. And it, it put her in, it cast her down, and she was in a pall all this morning getting ready. I said, honey, are you okay? She said, that dream is just so vivid, and it's the devil, and I'm just cursing it to hell. And, and I'm proud of her. That's basic Christianity, but I'm still proud of her because she's insisting on I'm not going to think on it, and I refuse to let it affect me. It's a demon giving me that vivid, destructive dream that affected, you know, whatever she said. We won't give voice to it because we don't want the devil to think it's working because it's not. But this is how it works. It doesn't just have to be a dream, though. It could be an attitude you get from somebody else. It could be a rough day. It could be the way your boss treats you. It could be a news article. It could be you didn't get the promotion you wanted. We choose to process these things the way we choose to process these things. And we have to treat these wicked things as if they were demonic dreams or if it was a demon looking at us in the eyes and saying, blah, 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 blah. And just say, I, I choose the Lord's report. I choose joy. I choose victory. I'm more than a conqueror. Here's something else to conquer. Yes, it's a choice. Yes, and so is the quality of your life. It's a total choice. We also discover that the heart has a voice and that the manifestation or expression of that voice can, be biblically, uh, can biblically be classified as either the conscience, faith, or an attitude. And that is something I want us to get a hold of and be ever mindful. Biblically, when your heart is talking, we would break that up into three categories. It's either talking and it's your attitude. My, 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 my. It's belly aching, mopey, grumpy. It's faith. If I may but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. That's faith, but that was the voice of her heart. Or it's your conscience saying, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. But at the same time, I don't know about that. It's still faith. I don't know about that. It's still attitude. Even in our series of teachings here with our guest minister, he has said stuff we've never heard taught before, and I can hear us going, I don't know about that. And that's all right. 
We've never heard it taught before. I'd rather us be cautious than just jump in on anything, but be like the noble Bereans and go study it out and say, well, that's 300 verses on that subject. I probably don't know anything about it yet. Amen. So when our heart is talking, begin to evaluate your own life and see, is that your conscience? Is that faith? Or is that an attitude? And they'll, they'll blend together in and out so much, but you could probably at some point stop and say, that's an attitude, I need to change it. Or that's faith, and I'm going to keep it. Or that is just my conscience, and I need to listen to what it's saying because it's revealing how I really am on the inside. All three are controllable. Why? Because among many reasons, they are all programmed. We program our conscience through discipleship. We program our faith through discipleship. And we program our attitude through discipleship. My Lydia is now 10, and we're having discussions about dirty words now because she's hearing them. And I'm having to explain how dirty words work and why we don't use them and how some dirty words are only dirty words in their context, like A-S-S. I can read that to you from the King James, and you wouldn't bat your eye at it. But if I were to use it in another context, he's cussing. So even the conscience, even the power of a word is trained. All of these things are discipled. And that doesn't mean always good Christian discipleship. Culture can disciple you. The professor can disciple you. Media can disciple you. It's totally what you listen to and what you choose to receive and believe. We program all three of these through discipleship. We can boldly declare that all three are controllable because we are able to steer our hearts by what we think, want, and emote. And if you get nothing else out of all these lessons, let it be that you can control your heart by controlling what you think, what you want, and what you emote. Job contains one of the most revealing passages concerning the heart and attitude. So Job 15, 12, and 13. I'll read in King James in the Century Standard Bible, or Christian Standard Bible. Why doth thine heart carry thee away? And what do thy eyes wink at? Thou that, turnest, uh, that thou turnest thy spirit, thy attitude against God. That's the part. You turn your attitude against God, and you let such words go out of your mouth. The uh, Christian Standard Bible says, Why has your heart misled you? And why do your eyes flash as you turn your anger against God and allow such words to leave your mouth? This verse right here, this is Eliphaz rebuking Job, and this could be applied to any one of us any moment of any given day. Why did you let your heart mislead you? Why did your eyes flash as you turned your attitude against your husband, as you turned your attitude against your wife, as you turned your attitude against your pastor, as you turned your attitude against your boss, as you turned your attitude against your parents? Why did your heart mislead you? Why did you let that happen? It's a rebuke. It's harsh, strong. There's no mercy there. It's correction and a call to repentance. Let me read it again in the Christian Standard Bible. Why has your heart misled you, and why do your eyes flash as you turn your anger, or that's rewalk, your spirit, your attitude. You turned your anger against God, and you allow such words to leave your mouth. Anybody ever been guilty of that sin right there? Yesterday. <laughs> in the traffic light on the way to church this morning. This passage confirms that our hearts are misleading, untrustworthy, and also the source of our attitude. If you want to change your attitude, get into your heart, start overhauling your heart. The attitude in turn affects what comes out of, uh, comes out of our mouths. 
Our mouths can reveal the deepest recesses of our heart as well as the current attitude. Your mouth is one way you manifest attitude. And even we know how even though we sit pretty, keep our mouth shut, still smokes out of us. It still originates and emanates out of us. Just sit there with a scowl on your face. Preachers see it all the time. Just sit there. You wouldn't dare speak up in a service, but you'll sit there and stare me down with disagreement. Sit there and say, I don't know about that. Just be open and honest about it in the very least. Or sit there and just stare at your husband with those eyes of hatred, evil eyes, just disgust. You know, I didn't say anything unpleasant. Mama, 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 mama taught me if I had nothing to say, shouldn't say nothing at all. How about I teach you if your heart's jacked up, fix it. Mama, 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 you hate your mama. Why are you listening to her? Mama, she needs to get saved too. <laughs> we can control both our attitudes as well as our mouths. And the sooner the better. Granted, we may not always be able to turn our hearts on a dime, but we can certainly begin to make a change. When you have been belligerent in your attitude or defeated in your attitude or fearful in your attitude or prejudiced in your attitude, a long time, it takes a, a long time to turn it, but at least you can begin to turn it. And hopefully with these lessons, we give you the mechanics of how you can quickly disassemble this thing clean all the parts, get the gunk out, and reassemble it for optimum performance. Eliphaz observed that Job had willfully turned his anger against God. We do the same with our emotions and attitude, good or bad. We control who and where we turn our attitudes. Here are several more verses concerning attitudes. So these are the bunch of the ones that I did not cover in last week's lesson. I think at some point I, I do in these two lessons cover all maybe at least 80 of the verses that are dealing with attitudes. So let's just read them. Job 7:11. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit or my disposition. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So here we see anguish of attitude, an anguished attitude, just pained, hurtful. You're, you're, you've lost a loved one. You've been betrayed. That's an anguish of attitude. Let me also stop and say these aren't all sinful attitudes. Sometimes these are just attitudes that we experience. And eventually, though, you change the attitude of anguish to victory. Sometimes you eventually, hopefully, change the attitude of sorrow to dancing. Sometimes you change the attitude of doubt to faith. The, all of our attitudes are subject to change, and there's nothing wrong with experiencing the attitude in the moment, but you have to catch it, judge it by the Word of God, and see if it's proper. Yesterday, I had a meeting with uh, another ministry and I will honestly tell you, I went up to that meeting in an attitude of wrath. I was ready to burn the house down. I had a whole bunch of scriptures and an argument, arguments already based in my heart. And I was ready to go up there and say, these are my concerns. We've called this meeting to voice concerns and hear concerns. And here are mine. And I, boy, I had my battle axe sharpened. I had arrows in my quiver. I was ready to, we were going to go to war and clean some stuff up. So I drive and I get to the meeting in the first 10 minutes. I pulled out cotton candy and bunny rabbits because they made me feel so good. My attitude was able to change, and I thought, praise God. I don't have to cut anything down. God's already dealing with the issues here, and it's not my battle. But I would say at least I was ready and willing to change my attitude. I think the dangerous thing is when you are hell-bent and hell-set 
on being right in your attitude. You don't even want to know where you maybe could extinguish the thing. And that comes back to the spiritual truth of you cannot convince the unconvincible. And you and I have to be open in our heart to being wrong and open in our heart to being encouraged and open in our heart to repent. If not, we're just going to be stubborn, callous, belligerent Christians who will become like stone, having a heart of stone that God can't even chisel on. We've got to be able to be changed in our heart so that we can change our life. Anguish and bitterness go hand in hand and manifest as complaining, so we have to be careful. All attitudes eventually manifest in our words. All attitudes eventually manifest with our mouth. You can only see that pot for so long, and then it boils over. Job 10 says, Thy visitation hath preserved my attitude. Visiting with people can revive their spirits and put them in a good mood. This is why we do jail ministry and nursing home ministry, and this is why we visit shut-ins, and that's why it's so important. Uh, visiting missionaries and calling to check on them really revives their spirit. That's what this verse is talking about. Your visitation preserved me. I was feeling so depressed till you showed up. I'm so happy to see your face. You want to make sure, though, your presence does bring reviving. <laughs> Sometimes seeing uh, that woman's car pull up in your driveway does not revive you. Uh, just lock the door, pull down the blinds, and we'll act like we're not here. That's my mother. I know we'll act like we're not here. She drove a long way. She didn't ask. She should have. I'd have told her don't. Isolation can cast anyone into depression. Psalm 32, in whose spirit, whose attitude, whose disposition, there is no guile. We want to make sure we have no guile in our attitude. Guile is the revealing of the details that promote oneself while withholding the details that make the individual look bad. It is an attitude to be repented of. We should always be as honest and straightforward as possible. We should always be as honest and truthful as humanly possible. I would almost always lead with the stuff that makes you look bad. Let that be your attitude. I'm going to go talk to my boss, and I'm going to tell off all the bad stuff. Say, boss, I have bad news and good news. Let me give you the bad news first so you'll like me when I give you the good news. Amen. Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and he saves such as be of a contrite attitude. We're looking at all the scriptures that deal with the Spirit as our attitude. The Lord is near unto them that are of a broken heart, and he saves and delivers those that are of a contrite attitude. We see that the broken heart and the attitude go hand in hand again. A broken heart will produce a humble attitude. You don't have to be broken to be humble, but if you're arrogant, you'll be dashed to pieces and humility will come. That's called humiliation. Humiliation is forced humility. And if you're humble, you cannot be humiliated. So if you're one to say, I'm just so humiliated, you're telling off on yourself that you are so full of pride. Nothing wrong with being embarrassed. We all do stuff that's embarrassing from time to time. But for, for, I was just so humiliated. That's forced humility. Somebody said you, it's hard to fall off your knees. So stay in prayer on your knees and you can't be humiliated. People who are easily humiliated are arrogant, cocky people. And that should not be us. He shouldn't get humiliated. He shouldn't, he shouldn't be embarrassed easily on top of that. And let me ask you this. I had an opportunity yesterday. Uh, do you get embarrassed in public talking about the things of God? You shouldn't. 
We were at lunch yesterday talking about the things of the Holy Ghost and angels and demons and casting out demons and angelic visitations and signs and wonders and preaching the gospel, just ministry in general. And uh, everybody I was with was very, very loud. And I had an opportunity to get, I wanted to almost say, like, I know how we sound right now. Well, so then we get to talking about transgenderism. So I chime in. I said, well, you know, that's a demon, right? When a dude wants to be a chick and a chick wants to be a dude, I mean, that's a demon. And so then we started talking about the whole swimming thing in the Ivy Leagues where the dude who wants to be a chick is breaking all the world records, and now she's a world record holder. She's taking the, the field by storm. No, she's a dude with dude shoulders beating these girls, but she got beat two weeks ago by a chick who wants to be a dude. I'm not making it up. The chick has had a double mastectomy, swims in a Speedo, but she's still swimming as a woman. These are Ivy League schools. These are supposed to be our best schools. So now I'm the one that's getting loud, and then I start talking about the hypocrisy of, of, of biological-based pharmaceuticals because they're supposed to design drugs for ba uh, uh, women's biology and design drugs for men's biology. So I'm loud, and the table beside us gets up in a transgender, <laughs> and she made... She was wanting to be a he. She just stared me down. And I said, it's hypocrisy to think that, uh, pharmaceutically speaking, there's only two genders, and then everybody else wants to pretend that there's 100 as the transgender person walks past me. And so the very thing I was afraid of, I have become the loud. <laughs> but I just stared her down and said, yeah, that's right. It's weird, isn't it? And, and then her mother was behind her, kind of a, typical cookful granny and just looked at me. I said, you heard it. Yeah, you, I didn't tell her that. I'm like, yeah, you heard it. <laughs> so, amen. <laughs> yeah. Why are we so embarrassed? What are we embarrassed of? We should be embarrassed of our sin. Nothing else. <laughs> the broken heart is tied to a penitent attitude. These are conditions God is quick to help. God is quick to help the humble. He's quick to help the penitent. He's quick to help the humble. He is not quick to help the arrogant. He's not quick to help those that are humiliated. He is quick to help the humble. Psalm 51:12 in the NIV, grant me a willing spirit, a willing attitude. That's an attitude. I can do. I'm well able. Let's do it. Don't be the stubborn person. The Bible says, don't be as they uh, who are stubborn, where you've got to, don't be as the, the mule or the horse that we have to put a bit and a bridle to drag you. Don't be that way. Be willing. David sought God for help with his attitude, and we can do the same. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I want to, but I don't want to, but give me a want to. I, I like the prayer because David was asking God for help with his attitude. Every one of us, I think at some point, mom or dad said, son, I'm going to help you with that attitude. We didn't even have to ask for that help. They got out the switch or the paddle, and they helped us with that attitude. Here's a couple of psalms that all go together or verses. My disposition was overwhelmed. My spirit was overwhelmed. Or whose spirit or attitude was not steadfast or consistent. They, Israel, provoked Moses' spirit or attitude. He struck the rock a second time. My spirit or my attitude faileth. We'd call that discouragement or hopelessness. Vanity and vexation of spirit. Vanity or vexation of attitude. And that phrase is used nine times in Ecclesiastes. So we see an overwhelmed attitude. We see an inconsistent, a not steadfast attitude, a provoked 
attitude, an attitude that fails, and a vexed attitude. These all kind of go hand in hand. They're all in the same grouping. Our attitudes can be overwhelmed and broken down, and that's what I want you to see here. Without God's constant refreshing, quit is all but inevitable because we can be overwhelmed. We can fall apart due to a lack of steadfastness. We can be provoked to anger. If they could provoke Moses to anger and he could ruin himself and his destiny, then we certainly can be provoked as well. The attitude that fails, sometimes we just give up. We hear no so many times. We, we have opposition so many times. We just flat give up. And then, of course, the vexation of attitude. We know what it means to be vexed, just constantly worn down, constantly beat down, constantly beat down. Even the best of leaders, like Moses, can be broken down by belligerent and stubborn followers. Even the strongest of husbands can be broken by a nagging wife. Proverbs says it's better to dwell in the top of a leaking attic than with a belligerent, nagging wife. And then a couple verses later in Proverbs, Solomon says, no, 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 no. That's too generous. It's better to dwell in the wilderness than in that mansion with that nagging, belligerent wife. Solomon had this huge mansion. He couldn't get far enough away from her. That thing was huge. I'd just rather go dwell in a, a little brush scrub hut than in that mansion with that miserable wretch of a woman. Even the best of men can be beat down little by little by little by, by condescending attitudes, snarky remarks. Wives, you don't realize how powerful your tongue is. You can totally emasculate your man with your sharp, ruthless words. You can give those backhanded compliments, those little insults under your breath, and you will ruin your marriage with this little thing. How great a fire this little member kindles. And it will totally be your fault. Totally. At the same time, men can do the same thing. They can beat their wife down, insult her, mock her, nag her, put her down. It doesn't matter who or where. We have to be careful with the words of our mouth. And we will give an account to God for every idle word, much less the ones that set on fire, the things that we claim are precious. We can be broken down in our attitude as well. The fallen world constantly works to beat us down and vex our fight or vex our spirit or vex our attitude. It wants to beat us down. Even if you've got this strong fight going behind you, uh, the world wants to beat that down. We have enough opposition from the world. We don't need it from our mate. We have enough opposition coming from the world. We don't need it from our children. We don't need it from our parents. So we need to obey Ephesians and make sure that no corrupt communication proceeds forth out of our mouth. But that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace. Corrupt communication is not cussing in that text. It's anything that beats down, nags, berates, and does not administer edification. So let us judge our mouths in our marriages and judge our mouths when it comes to our kids. Amen. The fallen world constantly works to beat us down and vex our fight. We must resist this and encourage ourselves in the Lord. You don't want your husband's time in prayer to be spent trying to build himself because of something you've done to him, honey. He's wasting his time because you're his anchor. 
You don't want him to have to always build himself up because you're always stripping him down. It's like same with your wives. You don't you want your wife to have to spend all her, all her time in prayer trying to encourage herself because you're a jerk to her. You don't want her time in prayer to be in tears because her husband is a moron and a Neanderthal. And that's a waste of life in prayer. You want to be able to be encouraging each other so that when you go to prayer, we're advancing, not maintaining. You can spend time treading water. You can spend time swimming to shore. And when you guys cut at each other's throats and criticize each other and mock each other and put each other down, you're barely treading water. You're going nowhere in the kingdom. And it's not designed to be that way. We're a team. We put 10,000 to fight. We don't fight 10,000 times. <laughs> All right. Ecclesiastes, I guess we're still on marriage from Wednesday night or whatever. We've been harping on it lately. Ecclesiastes 7, 8, 9. Better is the patient in spirit or the patient attitude than the proud attitude. Be not hasty in your attitude to be angry, for anger rests in the fool on the bosom of morons. We'll give you the big mic version. Anger rests in the bosom of morons. So how quick do you get angry? The Bible says you might be a moron. Solomon calls you stupid. Anger, not, not love, not faith, not joy, not peace, not hope. Anger rests in the bosom of morons. Now what does that mean? It means it's right there, easily coming to the surface. Some people, they are just such a miserable human, the slightest thing rubs them raw, and they set on fire the world around them. That's a fool. And that kind of person, when their loved ones come home, they have to tiptoe around them because they know they might bump the cauldron of anger and violence. And that's not fair to your family, nor is it the love of God. Amen. It should take a lot to provoke us to anger. Even when the Lord, when it was anger, angry, it says and he kindled his wrath, or they provoked his anger. It took a lot. And some of us, it doesn't take much. We blow up very easily. But that's only because on the inside, we are miserable. When you're miserable on the inside, you easily let it go. So you got to get to the root of it. Why am I so miserable? What is so bad about my life? Am I justified in my misery? And if you can't figure out why you're not, come talk to me, and I'll tell you everything you have going for you. And that should hopefully uh, extinguish your anger because you're going to get to a place where nobody wants to be around you, and you'll die alone. Amen. These verses command us what to do with our attitude, and that is don't be hasty. Isaiah 26, 9, that verse says, uh, With my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yes, with my attitude within me will I seek thee early. This verse kind of, we would tell it, call it the attitude of determination. With my soul have I desired. So here he is controlling what he wants. With my soul, I want you in the night, O Lord. And with my attitude, I seek you early. Determination is an attitude. We've got to make sure we have it in the right direction. Isaiah 29, 24. They also that erred in their spirit. They also that erred in their attitude. This verse just confirms we can sin or err with our attitudes. But we already knew that. But here's the verse that said it. They were in error. They were wrong with their attitudes. We just need to judge it, make sure our attitude is right towards everything around us. And if you hadn't noticed, it's a constant work. But everything in life is a constant work. Shaving is a constant work. Bathing is a constant work. The budget is constant work. Fitness is a constant work. Eating is a constant work. House maintenance is a constant work. Nothing in life can be left alone unless you want it to fall apart. 
everything takes work, work, work. Isaiah 54, 6, a woman forsaken and grieved in her spirit or in attitude. So we talk about a grieved spirit and it lumps together with Isaiah 57, 15. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble attitude to revive the attitude of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. We see over and over again, contrite attitude, humble attitude. And if we have a contrite attitude and a humble attitude, God will revive the attitude. God will revive the heart. So humility is key. This is the, one of the greatest attitudes we can have is humility. Be open for being wrong. Be open for being wrong. And don't get mad when you are exposed for being wrong. If you get mad when you're exposed for being wrong, you prove you're a mess. Amen. A contrite attitude will bring restoration and revival. <laughs> Ezekiel 3.14, And I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. That We call that hot anger. Some modern translations, it says Ezekiel, he went in hot anger. Now what's crazy about this is that I'll just read you my exegesis here. Though Ezekiel was translated by the Spirit of God into a heavenly vision, he still retained his anger and bitterness. This is a vision. The Spirit of God takes him, and he says, And I went in the Spirit. A vision, a trance that only the prophet could have prophesying from Persia. He went to Israel in this vision, but he says, I went in bitterness and in the heat of my spirit. So even though he's caught up in the spirit, he is still just as angry at their sin and rebellion. He's bitter. And that lets you know that your soul goes with you at places. Even Peter, if you remember him in Acts 10, he's caught up in a trance. And the Lord says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat all manner of four-footed beasts. And Peter's attitude is still bigoted. Peter's attitude is still legalistic. And in his attitude, he's arguing with God Almighty in the spirit. Not so, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean. Not so, Lord. Uh, the, these lips have never eaten anything unclean. He's arguing with God, and the Lord has to say, quit calling what I've made clean, unclean. And we have pointed out before the irony, the hypocrisy, is that Peter has this vision staying in the house of Simon the Tanner, which means he tans all manner of unclean animals I've not ever touched anything unclean. Well, what about that skin you're laying under? What about that fur rug you're sleeping on? What about that pillow you have under your head? I think everything in that house is unclean. It shows you how deceptive our attitudes can be. Though Ezekiel was translated by God into a heavenly vision, he still retained his anger and bitterness against Israel's rebellion. Ezekiel 21.7, And every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every attitude shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. That sounds like Hebrews 12. Uh, strengthen the feeble knees and make straight paths. We would call this timidity and fear. Melted hearts and faint attitudes. We've all been there where our attitude was just quit. We were just so discouraged. We just wanted to give up. Except Hebrews does come along in the New Testament and commands us to strengthen the feeble knees. Lift up your arms. Lift up your hands. We don't have permission to stay here. We don't have permission to stay timid. We don't have permission to stay faint. We don't have permission to stay weak in our attitude. We must encourage ourselves, gather ourselves. Corinthians says, quit yourselves like men. That is, pull up your big boy pants and act like a man. 
There is a time to fall apart when you first get the news or when you're first betrayed and your soul processes everything that's coming against you. That's permissible. But if you stay there one moment longer than God permits with grace and mercy, you'll be in sin. Because in that state of downcast defeat, you stop advancing the kingdom. Now, in the moment that you're defeated, you are part of the kingdom assignment for us, which is to go and bear one another's burdens and encourage one another and strengthen them and exhort them. You're part of our assignment, but at some point our assignment works or you're in sin. And I think we understand how that works. You don't get to mope through life and think you've done God a service. At some point you dry it up. It's enough tears. It's enough defeat. It's enough sorrow. And you say, all right, that's enough. Even as David said when his boy died, I thought I could turn God, but I couldn't. I've wept long enough. I'm getting up now, and I'm going to serve my God. At some point, you choose to turn it off. Well, you don't understand. Stop. Stop. That assumes that I've never lost anything. That assumes I've never been betrayed, never been hurt, never buried a loved one. That assumes I've never suffered betrayal. No, no. What you don't understand is the power you have in Christ. You're a conqueror. You're not a coper. You don't cope. You hurt when it's a proper season to hurt. You weep, you grieve, you mourn, you vomit, and then joy comes in the morning. You just don't let that morning be a year and a half from now. Amen. All right. Timidity and fear can proceed from a melted heart. Habakkuk 1.11 says, in his mind changes, or his attitude changes. And all these words are the words rewalk. It's all the words for spirit. But it's interesting, even the New King James uh, translates it as mind. And yet it's the word spirit. It's the disposition. It's the attitude. His attitude changes, and then he transgresses. <laughs> this ought to show you how quickly our attitudes can be adjusted. Because when temptation hits us, we go from wanting God and wanting to send, serve him, that spirit of temptation, that temptation, however we want to define it or view it, it hits us and all of a sudden our attitude changes and we say, mm, not now, I want sin. And just yesterday, Lord, I dedicate my life to you. I love you. You're so worthy of my praise. I need you, Lord Jesus. I, I'm so sorry for everything I've done. And you mean it. And then that spirit of temptation rests upon you because we've talked about how the devil walks a circuit and those things that are your common sin, you master those guys. And then all of a sudden, like one week out of two months, you're just like the biggest idiot living in that sin. And you're like, what is up with this? I thought I had mastered this. Oh, no, no, no. That, that spirit made a circuit. He rested upon you and he shifted your attitude like that. And you embraced it rather than resisted it. And just like that, your attitude went from I hate sin to, oh, gimme, 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 gimme. Then his attitude changed and he transgressed. So we got to catch it when we're in the good season because that demon will walk that circuit. We know the two or three or four areas we struggle in. We all have two or three, four common sins. Hopefully it's not more than that. If you're thinking only two or three, I've got like 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 100. You keep walking with God. You'll get it winnowed down to two or three. But even when you get it down to two or three, those two or three will break your heart like 15 or 20. You've got to be smart enough to know that demon's going to walk a circuit. He's going to spray that sin on, and you're going to be like, ah, oh, I just shifted my attitude, and I want to transgress. You've got to catch it and learn his route and smell him on his way to your camp and then be able to rebuke it. We can change our attitudes 
if we want to. I will say this, not to discourage you older folks, but the older you get, the harder it is because you were set up so long that way. You can, you should, but it does get harder the older you get. You just have to lean into God more, but you can still do it. Haggai 1.14, and the Lord stirred up the attitude of Joshua, uh, excuse me, Zerubbabel, and the attitude of Joshua, and the attitude of all the remnant of the people, and they came, and they did the work, uh, did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Uh, this reminds me of 2 Timothy. Stir up the gift of God which is in thee. In the Old Testament, the Lord stirred up the attitude. In the New Testament, the Bible calls us to stir up the attitude. Our attitudes determine our drive. If you have no attitude, you have no drive. I would even say, though, laziness is an attitude. Lethargy is an attitude. Depression is an attitude but you can stir up an attitude that will drive you into great things. God moved by his spirit, his Holy Spirit, to stir up the attitudes of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people of Israel to accomplish his will. This happens in every God-breathed revival. When revival falls, everybody's attitude is instantly invigorated to serve God. In revival, it's easy to serve God, which is why revivals cannot last. Revivals must be seasonal. Because he has to retract that wave of revival to see who will serve God in the lean times. It says of Jesus that they came to hear and be healed. That's awesome. It's kind of our mantra for healing school. Hear and be healed. But it doesn't say they stuck around and served. Everybody was for Jesus when the revival was there. But when the revival ended, a bunch of folks turned real quick. They liked it as long as they could be blessed, get some fishes and loaves, and their dead one raised. But once the persecution ensued, it really thinned the herd quickly. Revival comes upon us and it invigorates attitudes. Everyone's drunk with revival and serving God, but he has to retrieve it and draw it back to see what effect it permanently made on our heart. Amen. If we are not in revival, we must stir ourselves up. And if you didn't notice, we're not in revival of miracle signs and wonders. We're in revival of drawing close to God, and that takes some determination. So we stir ourselves up. We tell our emotions to shut up. We tell our, our car, get me to church. And we tell our heart, wake up early and seek God. We have to command things. You're going to command something anyway, whether you're a jerk to your husband. Might as well be a jerk to your flesh. Amen. Amen. You are, I can still deal with it. When you go on this like demonic tear like your mother and you're ruthless to your husband, you should record yourself and then play it back to you later so you can hear what you sound like. Amen. Hey, thank you, ma'am. Yes, Amen. <laughs> I won't be offended, but you guys were way more responsive to Dr. Jacobs the last two services. <laughs> And he was talking about stuff you've never heard of before. And I'm talking about stuff we've been teaching on for 13 years. And you're like, I don't believe in this attitude teaching. Of course you don't. You'd have to change if you did. You're too joyful being miserable. Malachi 2.15, therefore take heed to your attitude and let none deal treacherously against the spouse of their youth. We covered that Wednesday night. There's a bunch of other scriptures that talk about attitudes. Let's look at New Testament attitudes real quick. 
of the 385 New Testament uses of pneuma. And you wouldn't be surprised if I told you they're almost all Holy Spirit. That's the uses. 17 are references, as I study, 17 are references to attitude. Some examples are, and we say some because we covered the other rest of them in last week's message. Uh, here are some examples. Luke 147, and my attitude, my disposition hath rejoiced in God, my Savior. That's the prayer of Mary. Why don't we interpret it as human spirit? Because she's not born again yet. There honestly is not a revelation of the human spirit to be spoken of in the Old Testament. There might be four verses in all the Old Testament that I judge to be a reference to the human spirit as we understand it. It just wasn't revealed yet. Two of them are found in Job when Elihu is speaking about there is a spirit within man that burns. And even then we might could say, attitude? My attitude hath rejoiced in God my Savior. And certainly that is where we rejoice, is attitude. That's where the rejoicing is. That's where joy abides, is in our attitude. Acts 18.25, Apollos being fervent in spirit. We'd say attitude. Because if it was a matter of the human spirit, we'd all be fervent for Jesus. But we know what it is to see a zealous young preacher or a zealous young woman for God. They're just full of zeal, just fervent, and we want to harness that and never extinguish it. Zealous, a fervent in attitude. That's what we all need to have, and we can stir that up if we want it. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, glorify God in your body and in your attitude, which are God's. Now, this one I kind of debate because I don't know, does my attitude belong to God? I don't know if I can interpret this as spirit because how do I glorify God with my spirit if my spirit's already seated in heavenly places? So I'm kind of on the fence about how do we want to interpret this pneuma, this use of pneuma in 1 Corinthians 6.20. Glorify God in your body. Yeah, I have to do that because my body is a sin-natured, cursed vessel that has to be put off. But my spirit man, I don't have any issues with. It's seated in heavenly places. It looks like Jesus Christ. It's born again of the same spirit. But my attitude, that's a whole nother ball of wax. So I've got to glorify God in my attitude. But this would also say he owns that. Well, maybe because he owns me. So I'm kind of on a fence there, but I would want to lean more towards glorify God in your attitude, which I think is sound doctrine. We all would agree, yeah, I need to glorify God in my attitude. 1 Corinthians 7.34, The unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in body and in attitude. This is why single people need to take time to learn how to control their attitudes. If you're miserable single, you're going to make somebody miserable when you're married. But if you're joyful and content when you're single, you'll be joyful and content when you're married. Remember, marriage fixes nothing. Marriage magnifies everything. It'll magnify things you didn't even realize were a problem. And that's why we need Jesus in our marriage. 2 Corinthians 4.13, we having the same attitude of faith. And here, I'm going to call it attitude because it's an attitude that will produce a spirit about you. Just like lust will produce a spirit about you. But lust is a spirit. We having the same attitude of faith. Well, that fits with all of our other teaching. Your attitude is what you say and keep saying in your heart. But that's the woman with the issue of blood. She said and kept saying in her heart. According as, it is, uh, according as it is written, I believed and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Faith is what you believe in your heart. Faith is what you say you want and desire and need in your heart. We are not only able to control our attitudes, but we are also commanded to do so. We're not, only, we're not just able, we're commanded. There's a lot of things we're able to do, but God doesn't care if we do them or not. We're not just able, we're commanded. 
We do this by controlling what we think, want, and emote. I'm going to say that over and over and over again because you can control your emotions and you can control your thoughts and you can control your wants if you'll be disciplined enough to do it. And they don't always instantly shift. You have to train them. Tell them to shut up, shut up, shut up. Sometimes you've got to rebuke fear 10,000 times. You've got to rebuke lust 10,000 times. You've got to rebuke stupid thoughts 10,000 times. We must also guard our attitudes to make sure quit and hopelessness never creep in and root out all our increase. Amen.